Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. Back from a bit of a hiatus, I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Joining us today is Dr. Jacob Kimmel, head of research at New Limit, a company that is aiming to treat age-related disease to extend human health span. To advance this goal, they're building a novel platform to discover epigenetic reprogramming therapies at industrial scale. Before co-founding New Limit, Jacob was a principal investigator at Calico, where he led a computational and experimental biology lab focused on repurposing developmental programs to address aging and age-related disease. During graduate training at UCSF in the research groups of Wallace Marshall and Andrew Brack, Jacob applied machine learning to investigate how stem cells make decisions and how these decisions change with age. He's a rock star. We're lucky to have him on the show, and I'm excited to speak to him today about aging research, new limits work, and the role of machine learning in accelerating rejuvenation therapies. Jacob, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Chris. Really excited for this conversation. Me too. So let's dive right in. I, I think that this is one of those episodes that needs to begin with some definitions. So first, what are epigenetics and cell reprogramming? One way I like to frame what epigenetics is, is by starting with sort of a profound fact of life. All of the cells in your body have exactly the same DNA code, and yet they are doing incredibly different things. It's quite shocking to think about it, but you know your kidney has the same overall set of instructions in its DNA that your tongue does, and yet those have very different functional roles. And so this is really the question that motivates, I think, most of historical developmental biology is asking, how do cells get such different roles and functions when they all have the same DNA code? And it turns out that the short answer is there is a set, an, another regulatory layer on top of the DNA code called the epigenome. And this consists of chemical modifications to DNA itself, as well as to some proteins that associate with DNA, which basically tell each cell which parts of the genome to use at which time. So even though your cells all have the same genes, they're using very different sets of genes over time. So that's sort of what epigenetics is, this layer of regulation that tells your cell which genes can I use for my genome at which times. And then cell reprogramming or epigenetic reprogramming is really about changing that definition, that rule book about which genes the cells can use from the genome. Can I shift the cell so it's using different genes from its genome than it was using a moment ago? How do epigenetic changes, or one might say the deterioration of epigenetic information, contribute to age-related disease? I'll highlight here that epigenetic changes are probably just one of many things that occurs during the process of aging that leads to age-related dysfunction. But one high-level way of thinking about it is that there are many cells in your body which are have very high intrinsic function. So they're able to perform a given task. Here, I'll just use T cells in your immune system as, a, as an exemplar. When you're young, when they encounter a pathogen, they're able to respond well, form new memory cells, and actually provide your body with an immune response against a particular pathogen they saw. Now, as you get older, you still have those cells, but they're no longer using the right genes from their genome. They have an epigenetic change that has occurred, which now prevents them from reacting in the same way they might have when you're young, and that actually decreases function over time. So that's just one example of a, a single cell type where these epigenetic changes, which are actually intrinsic to each individual cell type, lead to a loss of function and then an increase in the burden of a disease. So you can think about that same story playing out across many different cell types and tissues in your body, where while those cells may still be present, they may still physically be in the right place, 
they may not be able to respond correctly to their environment in the same way they did when you were young, which then contributes toward the development of pathologies. Now, again, there are many other things that can go wrong with age, and I don't by any means wish to say that these epigenetic changes that occur with age are the only challenge, but we believe they're one that is large enough that if you're able to intervene upon that epigenetic regulatory layer, it's going to be sufficient to provide new medicines for age-related diseases. We often say at BioAids that we're pretty sure there's not going to be a silver bullet for aging. And I guess the implication of that is that we're going to need a lot of different bullets. But I appreciate you drawing attention to the idea that there there is more than one way to skin this particular cat. And there are quite a few different areas that are worth pursuing that won't explain everything, but that individually might help us make pretty serious progress in the right direction. So with what you just said under our belt, and thank you again for those super clear definitions, how would you describe New Limits mission in your own words? And again, to be a bit more pointed, can you provide an overview of your approach to epigenetic reprogramming? And maybe per what I just said about multiple bullets, how it differs from other kinds of approaches in the longevity space? My definition of New Limits mission is really what's written on the tin. You know, our goal as a company is to increase human health span. And the way I like to frame that more colloquially is we want to increase the number of happy, healthy years each person gets to spend on Earth. You can do that in multiple ways, but that's really the the yardstick we're going to be using to evaluate ourselves. In terms of what our approach is to how we want to develop epigenetic reprogramming medicines, I think it's useful to actually zoom out before zooming in. One reason we're really excited about epigenetic reprogramming as an intervention is that it's one of the very few mechanisms we know of that actually does have an existence proof of sufficiency. So we know that you can actually take even old cells that have these intrinsic defects. They don't perform their functions very well anymore. And you can reprogram them back to a pluripotent state. This is really uh, calling back on some work that was pioneered originally by a man named John Gurdon all the way back in the 1950s with frog eggs. And then later in 2006, Shinya Amanaka showed you could perform this reprogramming process with just a few genes called transcription factors that I like to think about as sort of conductors in the genomes orchestra. They tell your genome which other genes to use. They don't play an instrument themselves, but they, <laughs> they get to conduct the work of others. So we know that you can actually just express the four genes and reprogram even an old cell all the way back to an embryonic-like state, which not only changes the cell's type, the, the role it's playing, but also its age. If you then differentiate those stem cells back out into somatic adult cell types, many of those features of aging have been reversed. And as just an example of the strongest form of this existence proof, you can actually take a cell from an old mouse and reprogram it back to pluripotency. And then through a couple developmental biology tricks, you can actually turn that cell into a whole new young mouse, develop it again into a whole young mouse with a normal life ahead of it. And you can actually repeat that process on a loop. There's a single group that's done this 13 times in a row, wow. <laughs> where they actually take a cell, reprogram it, and then they generate a new mouse from it, and that mouse has a normal lifespan. I have not asked the authors, but I think they may have stopped because they got bored, not because it stopped <laughs> working. Each one of these mice lives two years, so it's quite a long experiment when you think about it. So that's one of the reasons we're so excited about this technology is that we actually have this existence proof that you can reverse many features of aging just by manipulating the epigenome. Now, the challenge is that that process I just described to you, that existence proof really involves changing both the cell's type, its function, and its age at the same time. And if we were to try and apply that process as a medicine, it would actually have negative consequences. It turns out that as an adult, you actually don't want to change the type of your cells that much. Um, that can cause negative side effects, but you do want to change their age. 
So there's also a, a whole other branch of results in this science that allows you to change a cell's type without changing its age. So you can take an old skin cell and turn it into a neuron, and it turns out that that neuron is actually still old. So you know you can change cell type alone, you can change cell type and age at the same time. So this is a long lead up to say that New Limits approach is really trying to discover ways we can reprogram cell age without reprogramming cell type. So really completing that coordinate system I just described. Um, we can move on cell type axis, we can move on cell type and age at the same time. What we don't know is if we can move on cell age alone. So that particular problem of figuring out how we can reprogram cell age independent of cell type involves trying to manipulate similar transcription factor molecules, these same conductors of the genome's orchestra we talked about before. Now, one of the problems you run into when you start thinking about manipulating these transcription factors is that we know from developmental biology, they actually act in combination with one another. If I can abuse my or mix my musical metaphors here for a moment, it's a little bit like a jazz band where the actual overall music that's coming out is pretty dependent, not just on the individual players, but that, that combination. You know, you, you add Thelonious Monk or remove him and the band can sound totally different, even if all the other players remain the same. And so what that means is that the space of possible transcription factor combinations we might manipulate is actually not defined by just the number of transcription factors, which is about 2000, but by the number of combinations of a reasonable order. And that's a much, much larger space that's almost too difficult to search exhaustively experimentally. So what New Limit's doing is we're building a platform that allows us to test as many of these combinations as possible in the world of atoms experimentally, and to build assays that allow us to measure have we had an impact on cell age? Have we made an old cell look young? And have we made an old cell act young? And at the same time, we're also building a machine learning platform which allows us to prioritize which of these experiments are most worth doing. Because even with the most sophisticated experimental platform on the planet, we'll never be able to search through all the hypotheses together. And so our hope is that by combining that, those two platforms, we'll be able to find interventions that reverse cell age without changing cell type and actually turn those into medicines. I just want to underline a couple of points that you made. One is that you're seeking to change cell age without changing cell type. So maintaining the function that the cell has as a differentiated kidney cell or tongue cell, to use your examples from before, but to return them to a more youthful state. Very important. I wanted to draw that out for our listeners. And then the other idea that I think is hugely powerful is your existence proof argument. It really says that the potential for age reversal is built into our biology. Yeah, I, I agree with both of those points that this existence proof tells us that there are mechanisms by which we can manipulate cells using even genes within our own genomes and actually reverse features of aging. And so while it may sound like a far-fetched premise or science fiction at first blush, this idea that you're able to actually reverse the age of a cell, it's quite remarkable that that's actually intrinsic to our own genomes. And just that program, while it exists, lies latent and isn't activated. And there are good reasons for that. In the vast majority of circumstances in your life, if that program were reactivated, it could have negative side effects rather than positive ones. But our hope is that we can disentangle some of that potential from those, those negative side effects and actually use it to develop medicines. I'd like to hear more about the platform that you're developing. And you, you began to touch on it, but I'd really like you to maybe just walk us through the discovery process as you are envisioning it. And I invite you actually to delve into a little bit of technical detail as much as you're comfortable with. And uh, along the way, help us understand how this approach is going to accelerate the development of novel interventions. Yeah, sure. Would be more than happy to. This is one of my favorite topics. In order to describe what New Limit's trying to do, it's first useful to actually frame sort of the most naive way we might approach this problem. 
So we have a number of transcription factor combinations we like to test in biology more generally. We might just call these, each combination is a, a perturbation, a thing we'd like to poke some cells with and then ask what happened to that cell's age. So the very traditional way of testing a large number of interventions would be to line up a bunch of test tubes uh, in, a, in a well plate, so to speak. So you've got a, a plate with a bunch of what are effectively small test tubes lined up. You'd put your old cells in each one of these test tubes, and then you'd introduce one of these interventions, one of these transcription factor combinations. And you'd ask, did that have an effect on cell age in a way that I can measure? And if we're being very traditional about it, we'd try and choose one thing to measure, like the activity of one gene, one behavior of the cell to measure whether or not we've changed their functional age. That would be the very traditional approach. And the challenge that we run into is that there are so many combinations that very quickly it would become intractable to line up enough test tubes to test them all. The other challenge we run into is that aging, unlike some other pathobiologies, is very complex. We think it's highly unlikely we'll be able to define just a single gene or a single behavior that we can measure in each test tube to know whether our combination has worked. And so the approach we're taking is a little different and uses a few tricks from functional genomics. So we're really standing on the shoulders of giants here. And the basic premise is that you can take a pool of old cells and deliver a pool of perturbations using a particular biology that's stochastic, meaning that each cell is going to randomly get some combination of those perturbations from the total pool. So if I deliver 100 perturbations, maybe each cell picks up four or so. And that allows us to then, in a single dish, test hundreds of combinations, up to thousands of combinations in a single dish in one of these experiments. And then in order to actually measure what happened, we now have this mixture where every cell represents a different experiment, but they're all stuck together. We can actually barcode those perturbations with DNA barcodes. And you can then profile those individual cells using single cell genomics or some other forms of ensemble genomics chemistry and measure not just the activity of one gene, but the activity of all of the genes in the genome, the accessibility of all the regions in the genome, the proteins on the surface of the cell, and get a much more complete picture as to whether or not you've made that old cell look young. And so at the top level of our, our screening approach, that's really what we're, we're building upon are these functional genomic strategies that allow us to run many more experiments than we would be able to using a traditional approach. So we consider that sort of just the top of the platform we're building. It's one way of enriching our hypotheses. It lets us ask, does this combination of transcription factors make an old cell look young? But what we really care about is whether an old cell acts like it's young. To some degree, looking young doesn't help us much if we still don't perform the functions of a young cell very well. And so we also have another set of, of assays we're developing that use a similar functional genomics trick that allow us to directly measure the functions of a cell. And these are different for every cell type we're interested in. But just to give you an example for T cells of the immune system, this might be something like when this cell sees a pathogen, it should proliferate and it should respond by trying to attack the pathogen. And we can measure those features and ask which combinations led the cells to perform those functions better. So everything I just told you is really happening in the real world. Those are experiments we're running in the world of atoms. And as good as we get at those approaches, unfortunately, we're never going to be able to do all of the experiments we hope for, just to run off some, some napkin math for you. Even if we're very, very clever and we're able to reduce down the number of transcription factors we care about by 95%, so rather than screening through a set of 2,000 in the genome, we're looking at a set of, let's call it 100, then the number of plausible combinations is still on the order of 10 to 100 million, and that would require more single-cell genomics than the whole world has done cumulatively to date to search exhaustively. So just to give you an idea, even with the best approaches experimentally, 
there are simply more questions to ask than we can answer. So we're also building out a machine learning platform that really is predicated on predicting the effects of some unseen perturbations. So you can think here that if we can build machine learning models that know something about transcription factors from all our prior knowledge, and they know something about the starting state of a cell, and they've observed the number of these experiments where we combine the two, here's the starting state of an old cell, here are some descriptions of the transcription factors we applied, and here's the result we got we can start to predict what would happen in the case of new transcription factors that maybe we haven't tested or maybe we've tested them alone, but not in combination and ask whether or not that experiment would either teach us something new, give us a phenotype we haven't seen, or ideally even actually yield a result we care about making an old cell look young. And so those machine learning models then can in some ways become the top, top of funnel of that discovery platform. They're really like an in silico screen where you can test all possible combinations exhaustively, unlike what you can do in the world of atoms, where unfortunately you're always going to be a bit more limited. And so really that's the, the discovery platform approach we're laying out to search this very large combinatorial space of transcription factors as exhaustively as possible using different assays at different layers where we're increasing the scale at the cost of a little bit of fidelity for the ultimate phenotype we care about at each stage as we move upward. Very fascinating. I'm going to ask a couple of naive questions. One of them is a little skeptical, but in a friendly way. And I think I'm, what I'm hoping is that they'll be enlightening in the end and, and accomplish more than just revealing my ignorance. So I want to go back to the idea of barcoding and the stochastic perturbations that you're doing in these pooled experiments. So I understand how to barcode one gene, but I don't understand how you barcode the combination. Yeah, great question. So there, there are a couple ways to do this, and I'll tell you, we're, we're trying both of these and, and have versions of both working. So one version is that you can actually tie the perturbations you care about together in molecular space. So one perturbation is actually represented by, one combination is represented by one large piece of DNA that has a barcode, and each cell gets just that one large piece of DNA. Now, that's one approach. It's fairly straightforward. It doesn't work that differently than barcoding one gene with one barcode. And you still only need to detect one barcode per cell to know what sort of combination of perturbations it got. But there are reasons that's maybe not the most ideal scenario, because you have to now build every single combination that you want to test separately in physical space. So the other approach we're using is that if you have each perturbation, where one perturbation is one piece of DNA with one barcode, and then a cell picks up multiple pieces of DNA. Now the cell has present within it, not just one perturbation's DNA code along with its associated barcode, but multiples of those. So to make it concrete, let's imagine we now have a cell. It picked up four separate perturbations. So there's four separate pieces of DNA in the cell, each with their own independent barcode. As long as I can detect all of those barcodes within the cell, then I actually know what combination of perturbations are received, not just one. So there's you know four barcodes, four perturbations. As long as I detect them all, then I'm, I'm in good shape. Now, to highlight why your skepticism is 100% warranted, it turns out that detecting these barcodes with very high fidelity is actually pretty tricky. And this is something we've had to work a lot on. If you take sort of off-the-shelf efficiencies for these sorts of barcode detection, maybe about 50% of the time, you'll detect the barcode. And if you only want to deliver one perturbation per cell, that works fine. You can basically just not analyze the cells where you don't detect a barcode. But for us, if we only detected a barcode 50% of the time, well, then the likelihood we ever detected four correctly is one over two to the fourth power. Uh, it would be like mislabeling 15 out of 16 tubes on your bench. <laughs> it would just be incredibly hard to ever do science that way. 
And so it turns out that just getting that efficiency of detection as high as possible, we're now at a place where we can do it with 95% plus detection rate is actually really critical to making this sort of screen work. So it's a really great question. Okay. Well, I really appreciate that. I, we're, we got a bit into the weeds at my invitation, but I was dying to know the answer to that question. And I really appreciate the clear answer. All right. The second question is, as it does at BioAge, machine learning plays this crucial role in New Limits research. And you you explained to us how you're going to narrow the scope of the atom space experiments by doing an in silico analysis that kind of narrows down the universe of possibility. And this is another kind of skeptical slash test my knowledge question that I'd like you to help me with. So when I think about machine learning, one of the first things I think about is training set. Mm -hmm. And when I think about a training set, I think about something that's very, very large compared to the output that I want the system to give me. That is to say, I want to have a very, very large amount of ground truth, accurate input into the training set, and then ask the trained system, you know, a few questions about how it predicts some things that weren't in the training set might behave. Now, based on what you said about the sheer astronomical scale of the number of combinations of transcription factors that you really want to consider at whatever level, is it possible to use a narrow set, a relatively narrower set of physical experiments to train a system that then makes speculations or projections about the astronomical number of combinations that are available to you as you mix and match all the transcription factors in the genome. Does that question make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I totally appreciate the, the intuitive sense of why this stretches belief a little bit. The idea that you'd be able to take a relatively small amount of data and, and use it to predict what would happen in a much larger circumstance, I think defies some of our intuitions. And so I'll address this in a couple ways. One is that while the amount of data we have for the sort of complete loop of transcription factors, cell states, the combination of those and the outcome is, as you, you highlight, relatively small, especially today where we've just started running these real experiments, we don't yet have a large historical backlog. There actually is a wealth of other information out in the world that's been collected over the past several decades that actually informs our models as well. So by starting with transcription factors as the molecules we're manipulating, we get to actually take advantage of a lot of prior work that's been done. These are some of the best understood molecules in all of biology. We know not only the sequences of their proteins, their 3D structures, the DNA sequences they bind across a number of different chromatin contexts, the composition of the domains within those protein structures. We have a whole rich set of information that we can use to describe each of these transcription factors that's really built upon the work of others over the past 20 years or so through the Human Genome Project and ENCODE and other efforts of similar scale. So our models right off the bat are initializing with this prior knowledge that's been gathered over quite a long time. So we're starting out not with a tiny bit of data to help inform how we make these predictions, but actually quite a large amount. The other point to note, and I think you, you actually pointed this out, is that when we first start training these models, there actually isn't a ton of data available for these types of partial reprogramming screens we're hoping to perform. Really, the largest screens of this type that we know of have been performed at New Limit, and they're still much smaller than we hope to eventually scale to. That said, even with just those sorts of data available, we're already able to build models that perform better than randomly searching through the experimental hypothesis space and already perform better than our, our rough heuristics about which interventions might be most impactful. And so 
even with this relatively small amount of data, plausibly because of the large corpus of information we have available about the molecules we're using to perturb cells, we're able to get performance with just some of the very first attempts that's superior to what we get from, again, random search or human intuition. So really that gets at your question a little bit. It's maybe the, the short version of this answer is that while we start with a little bit of perturbation data, we actually have quite a lot of information about the underlying transcription factors we're using and the cell states that cells can occupy for many of these cell atlasing efforts that have been performed. That was a tremendously satisfying answer. Thank you very much. Now that we understand the approach and we understand actually quite a bit about the nuts and bolts, thanks to your last few answers, I want to change gears a little bit and just ask a broad question of the general type, how's it going? Can you share some examples of some of the most promising ideas that have emerged? And I, I understand that we like to play these things close to the vest, but I'd, I'd love an overall sense of kind of how far along you feel like you've come along your path and to the extent that you're willing and able, uh, maybe tell us about some of the biological areas in which the progress has been made. Overall, I think things are going amazingly well, far better than I anticipated a year ago when we founded the company. So just to date, you know, I've described at a high level in sort of verbal cartoons, the style of experiment we hope to set up, these large functional genomic screens for these partial reprogramming interventions. So prior to New Limit, to the best of our knowledge, really the field had only tested, let's call it a couple dozen combinations of transcription factors to ask whether you could reprogram cell H without reprogramming cell type. And already at New Limit, we've been able to test several hundred combinations. And so we think that the screens we're setting up are actually going quite well. However, they're still an order of magnitude smaller than what we hope to achieve over the next few years. So I'd say it's still really early days on the scientific side. But nonetheless, I think the rate of progress we've been able to make is really a testament to the hard work of our team and has been much larger than what, what we may have guessed on day one. Likewise, on the machine learning front, while we haven't had the sort of corpus of perturbation data to work off of for very long, we've already been able to build models that are sufficient for improving the searches that we're performing in the real world. And so I think the fact that we've already been able to achieve better than random performance, while it's still early innings, much inferior to the models we hope to one day build, we think it's quite promising that even these earliest attempts have been sufficient to improve upon what we might do more naively. So I think in both camps on the scientific front, we're doing quite well and we're quite happy with the progress. In terms of the most exciting ideas or the areas where that progress has been made, again, it's largely in those functions of the, the platform development I just described. In terms of the biology we found, we've already not only been able to reproduce some results that are known, like transient interventions with Yamanaka factors that reprogram both cell type and age have some interesting effects, but we've also been able to find many novel phenotypes for with partial reprogramming that haven't been observed before. And so we're quite excited by this demonstration of the platform's capability to expand the scope of the types of interventions we might consider. And I'd say there's been also a lot of progress on the experimental front, not just in terms of scaling the sorts of technologies where we had available at the beginning, but also in implementing new technologies that allow us to run larger screens in the future. So relatively pedestrian problems like delivering these perturbations to cells at high efficiency are actually quite difficult to solve in practice when you're working at this sort of scale. And we've made quite a bit of progress on that front, um, really testament to the molecular biologists on our team. And so we've been quite pleased with that as well. So hopefully that gets at your answer. Maybe not quite as late innings as one would hope for. We're not yet talking about the therapies we've made, but I think for this early stage of the company, we've been tremendously impressed by the progress. I mean, Jacob, you've been at it for a year, man. Come on. Like, where are the drugs? 
I, I know. It's, it's <laughs> quite amazing how much longer it takes to develop drugs than it does to develop research tools, but they'll, they'll come one day. Yeah. Tell me about it. We are well aware. I do want to pick your brain a little bit about what kinds of age-related diseases that you're envisioning as the most immediate targets for the perturbations and interventions you develop. And based on your mention of T cells above and your example about, you know, a cell that proliferates in response to a pathogen, I infer that you're thinking about the immune system a lot. I could be wrong. Where are you imagining that the first application or deployment of these perturbations might be? And if it's possible for you to tie it into an age-related disease, that would be icing on the cake. But I'm just inviting you to speculate slash project. You've inferred correctly about the things I think about based on some of my previous answers. So one of the first places that we think this technology can be applicable is in the aging immune system to really combat immunosenescence, the loss of your immune system's function with age. We don't think this is the only application area by any means. We think partial reprogramming can be applied to many diverse cell types in the body. But for a number of reasons, we think this is a really promising area for our first deployment. So in terms of the types of indications that one can address, I think there are many indications that are available even within the immuno-oncology space where you can improve the function of cells in an oncology setting. And we see those more as early-term applications, but we're tremendously excited by applications in infectious disease a bit further out in time, where if we could improve the function of your body's immune system to combat novel pathogens, we could potentially bend the curve of the exponential increase in incidence and virulence of infectious disease with age that produces a really large burden upon humanity. I think many of us have had a pretty recent lesson of just how severely your age can impact the outcome of infectious disease during the COVID pandemic, where it became quite stark and clear to many of us that diseases which perhaps weren't quite as severe in the young could actually be disastrous in the elderly. And our hope would be that in the limit case years down the line, we'd be in a place to intervene upon the aged immune system to restore function such that an elderly person combating an infectious disease could have a response much more similar to their youthful self that's much more vigorous and reduces the overall negative outcomes that might occur. So hopefully that gives you just a sense of the types of applications we're imagining. And again, I'll start by saying, or I'll end by saying, <laughs> this is not, not the only application of the technology, but one of the first ones we're excited about. Indeed. And something has to come first. And, you know, we do tend to walk before we run in this business. It feels like the immune system is also nice from the standpoint of something you alluded to above, which is delivery. Like by and large, the immune system and the progenitor cells of the immune system are ones that you can take out of the body, manipulate them, and then put them back in. And much more so than with a solid organ, it feels like the early generation of interventions based on the, the discoveries you make are going to be easier in an organ system like that, where the individual cells can be taken out and operated on ex vivo. Am I getting that right? I think that's one of the earliest applications. I, I will highlight, I think, you know, here at New Limit, we're actually very excited about up and coming in vivo delivery potential. So we think even when we're talking about in vivo delivery of some of these reprogramming payloads, that immune cells are going to be one of the places where it's most plausible to deliver these payloads in the near future. Now, this technology isn't quite here today. It's not an off-the-shelf product one can go purchase, but we're really excited by the pace of developments. And so in addition to the ex vivo delivery that you allude to, which is certainly one of the reasons these particular cell types are attractive for near-term applications, we also imagine that when we think about delivering these products and medicines in vivo, this will be one of the first cell types where you actually have the ability to deliver the intervention you've discovered, which is a gating step on whether or not that intervention is actually going to be a plausible medicine. 
Speaking of things that aren't ready yet, but in terms of delivery of proteins to cells in an intact body, you must have been pretty excited about the recent announcement from Feng Zhang's lab. Yeah, I think the expansion of the delivery toolkit is is quite exciting writ large. So both, you know, here at New Limit, we're actually quite interested in delivering nucleic acids. So so message as a way of delivering reprogramming factors. But certainly in the future, having the palette available to directly deliver protein in addition to message gives you an even finer grained control over the types of payloads one might be able to plausibly deliver, the regulation you can apply on those to improve specificity, and also the temporal kinetics where protein and message are going to have quite different half-lives and quite different knobs you can turn in order to actually play with some of those pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic parameters we think about as drug developers. Indeed. So the last few questions and answers have kind of circled around this overarching question, which I'll now ask explicitly. What do you think the most significant challenges are in translating epigenetic reprogramming from the lab to the clinic? And how are you at New Limit addressing these challenges? I think delivery that we've just highlighted is one, so I won't belabor that. Even if you discover a very impactful combination of reprogramming factors, if you don't have a way to deliver it meaningfully to the cells of interest in a specific setting, then it can't necessarily become a medicine. So in addition to that delivery problem, I think there's another, this pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic control. You know, in more traditional drug modalities, we have a wealth of knowledge built up over time of how to tune these parameters in small molecules or monoclonal antibodies, recombinant proteins. Whereas the space of nucleic acid delivery that we're thinking about at New Limit is much more nascent. And so thinking about what sorts of timing and dose control we need and exactly what sort of persistence we might achieve, these are all new problems that we're going to have to navigate on the road ahead. I'd also say that latter point is an important consideration as well. For epigenetic reprogramming interventions, one of the hopes is that you'll be able to make a transient intervention and based on reprogramming of the epigenome, which can persist for a lifetime or more, that you could actually have some phenotypes that are durable. So transient interventions could have durable phenotypic benefits for a patient. However, that space hasn't been explored very richly. We know very little about just how long some of these interventions last. And so I think that navigating that space of perdurance, both from the perspective of safety and efficacy, will be challenging and is unique to these epigenetic reprogramming interventions, and not something where we necessarily have an established playbook to play off of in the same way we would if we were using a modality like a small molecule or an antibody. As we get toward the end of our interview, I want to wrap up by uh, quickly asking, first of all, what's going on right now at New Limit that you're the most excited about? And I really just want to give you the opportunity to talk about anything that you would like to talk about that I haven't managed to ask you about yet. I'll say that you've done a great job as an interviewer and asked me about quite a lot of what we're already doing. But I'd say the things I'm most excited about are the sorts of novel discoveries that are coming off of our, our platform. Just being able to search this space of interventions at an order of magnitude greater scale than has been done before, even though it's an order of magnitude smaller than we hope to implement, has been already fairly illuminating. And so I'm really excited about some of that biology we're finding, as well as just the rate of progress at the scale of those experiments we can run. And then likewise, I think we've already had a chance to chat about, but the continued improvements in performance on the ML side, I think, have been really heartening to see. You know, we started the, the firm with a hypothesis that this would be a plausible approach, and it's been quite exciting to actually see that play out in practice. So those are some of the things that are, have been really exciting to me. In addition to just building our, our really remarkable team, I think the thing I'm most proud of at New Limit, above and beyond any of the science, is actually just the amazing team we've been able to pull together to actually pursue this ambitious goal. Um, this will also be my time for a shameless plug, which is to say we're continuing to grow that team. So for anyone who thinks this is an exciting mission, you know, we'd certainly love to hear from you. 
I'm going to call your offer of employment and raise the audience something else about New Limit that I'd like to plug is you all recently just published an amazing hour-long update with comments from Brian Armstrong, other founders, yourself, team members, that even more comprehensively than this pretty excellent interview defines what's going on at New Limit. So we will be including the links both to the New Limit website, the careers page, I'm sure, and to the YouTube recording of that presentation. I, I really encourage anybody who's been energized by this interview to seek those resources out because as you can tell from, and I'm addressing the audience now, as you can tell from what you've heard from Jacob on this show, they are, among other things, excellent storytellers about the approaches that they're taking. So, all right, blue sky time, Jacob. Two questions. Where do you see the field of epigenetic reprogramming? And I'm inviting you to think not just of New Limit, but the whole field and longevity research. Where do you see them headed in the next five to 10 years? Five to 10 years, I'd say I want to be, be moderated in some of my claims, but I do think in the field of longevity research more broadly, I think five to 10 years is a reasonable time frame on which we might see some of the first medicines that members of the community think are actually impacting health span being approved, or at least in late stage trials. I think uh, some of those exciting developments are happening at BioAge, if, if nowhere else. And so I think that's going to be a very important decade for the field writ large. In terms of epigenetic reprogramming more specifically, I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see some of the first applications of this technology in the clinic, some of the first proof points that these interventions actually can benefit patients in a material way. And I think that's really important to stay grounded in. You know, it's really exciting to talk about the science and the technology. But at the end of the day, that's really what's motivating to all of us here and certainly in many of the other partial reprogramming firms that exist. And I think seeing those first proof points will catalyze the field to, to move even faster. So that's my, my uh, relatively pedestrian prediction for the next five, 10 years. Hey, you know what? We have to be moderate sometimes. We have to be a little bit humble. We are taking on a pretty big problem. But now I'm going to ask you to be not less humble, but maybe less constrained. So we just talked about the next five to 10 years. Now I want you to think about the future, however you define that. And I know from comments you've made elsewhere that you're not shy about imagining the ramifications of your work. So I invite you, as we're closing, to tell our audience how you, Jacob Kimmel, imagine a world that's transformed by rejuvenation biotech and epigenetic therapies. What are the implications for human health? What are the implications for society? Go. Sure. So implications for human health. So let's just imagine, let's paint the picture of the science fiction future we're living in. We have access to multiple medicines that when started midlife, let's say, dramatically reduce the incidence of some age-related diseases. I think what I'm strongly hopeful occurs is that if such medicines are to exist, that you can actually increase the number of happy, healthy years each one of us gets. And so what I hope that means for someone like myself is that the number of years in which I can plausibly consider hiking the John Muir Trail increases uh, in an immeasurable way. And likewise, for those of you with other hobbies, I, I hope that these sorts of experiences we derive a lot of fulfillment from increase in their abundance as a result of these medicines being available. So in terms of societal impact, I think not only will that increase the, the number of healthy, happy years we have, and therefore hopefully the fulfillment each one of us derives, but likewise, I think that also substantially can reduce the burdens of cost on the healthcare system, where today uh, a large fraction of care is actually provided near the end of life and doesn't always add as much value for patients as we would hope. It doesn't actually always add the same degree of happy, healthy years that you really want to, to belabor a phrase a little bit. So those are my, my projections in terms of what the science fiction future could look like. 
we have access to medicines that we can administer, let's say this is now some, some period far in the future, that increase that number of happy, healthy years, and then therefore decrease the overall burden on the healthcare system as we get older, because we're happier and healthier for a much longer period. Well, today it's science fiction. Let's hope it soon becomes science fact. Dr. Jacob Kimmel, head of research and co-founder of New Limit. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.